last week. If you remember, the Pharisees, they show up, and they're for the purpose of doing what? Yeah, they want to trap Jesus. And they try to bring him into this long debate over divorce in this very volatile area where John the baptizer himself, uh, in, as far as the region goes, where he was beheaded for taking a certain stance. And, but Jesus doesn't play by their rules, does he? And so Jesus, instead of getting into this long debate over divorce and, and what all they had said, Jesus instead takes them back further than the law of Moses. And he takes them to the garden. He says, here is God's design. Here is his intent. And, and in there, you don't see anything about divorce. What he's trying to show them is this is what God wants for our lives because this is what mirrors the image of God. And he just really points that out. This week, Jesus has someone else come up to him and ask a question. And let's see what, how this whole thing starts in verse 17. Somebody read it for us. Okay, so here comes this guy and he has a question. Now, we need to understand that he's not trying to trap Jesus. He's not trying to trick him. Uh, he runs up. He kneels before him. Uh, I don't think we can say, I don't think we can doubt this man's sincerity at all. And he also asks a question, folks, that, that this has not been asked. And, and it has not been asked by the disciples of Jesus himself, themselves. Folks, this is the very reason Jesus has come to the earth. This is why God left the earth and put on human form was to answer the question of eternal life. And he finally is asking this question about eternal life. Now, Mark simply refers to him in our text as a man. But who do we know this man as? Yeah, the rich young ruler. And that comes from the synoptic gospels. And we, we've served synoptic gospels talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are, are, they are really kind of parallel to each other in a lot of ways. Uh, John kind of has his own, um, his own style going on there. But in the Synoptic Gospels, this is where we get rich, young, ruler. But here, Mark calls him the rich ruler. So, I mean, rich, rich man. Somebody read for us verses 18 and 19. All right. So Jesus responds with a question of his own, which is kind of odd. The question that he asked which is why do you call me good because it doesn't seem like this this is going along I mean he's asking about eternal life and he, he says good teacher you know what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said well why are you calling me good because only God is good and that's the way in Judaism that's the way it was seen even the rabbis as much as they love titles very rarely were they called good teacher because they did not want to blaspheme the name of God. And I think Jesus is doing something here. Um, and we also know Jesus is what? He is God, right? So everything about this, anytime there's something that's like, I, it don't even, this doesn't even look like it fits here. Usually it's because we haven't gotten to the point yet. And he's, he's kind of, you know, getting something out there for us. So he asks, what must I do to be saved or to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus answer his question for him here? No? Would you read the text? 
What does it say? What does Jesus say here? Do what? Yeah, yeah, okay. He says you need to keep the commands, right? And, and he gives five of the Ten Commandments right here. Now, he also gives another one, which is do not defraud. Uh, that's not in the Ten Commandments. And that has to do with to deceive somebody of something by deceit. We don't know, but this may have had something to do with the rich man. So we come to verse 20. Somebody read verse 20 for us. All right, so Jesus says, this is what you need to do, and his response to that is what? Now, here's my question. If he's been keeping the command since he was young, why is he coming to Jesus? Why does he sense there might be something else? See, that's a very important question that we have to figure out in this text. And he's lacking something is why he comes to Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, of course. And, and there may be reasons for that because it could be one of three things. Or it could be all three. You know, sometimes these parables and these narratives, they are to hit all of us in different places. And one in this is maybe he felt like that he was good. Remember, he, he comes and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, well, why are you calling me good? And it may be Jesus' way of saying, you know, um, you think you are good because you keep these commands. In fact, let's just roll those out. How are you doing on these? One possibility. Another one is that money and possessions doesn't make one content. That even though he had these things, he still felt there's something that's, that's missing in his life. I think that's a real possibility. Another one is keeping the commandments wasn't enough. He kept them from his youth, but he felt like there's, there's still something there um, that is missing. So we look at the question he asked again. It's very important. Well, uh, before we do that, well, I thought I had it up there. But we look at his question once again. He says, what must I do? Those two words are very important in the question he asked. What is it that I do? to have eternal life. And for a Jew, how did they see the ultimate, what was the ultimate requirement of religion? It's to follow the law, right? It's to follow the law. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. Here's in Psalm 119. And by the way, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And the whole thing is about God's word. And it's about his law. And it's about following him. Psalm 119 says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's a beautiful thing. I, I don't think this text is going to change that. But we do know that before Christ, how did the apostle Paul, who was a Jew, who was Sanhedrin, how did he feel about how he kept God's law. He says, as to righteousness under the law, he said, I was blameless. But Paul needed more, right? Being zealous and being righteous under the law and following law, that's not 
how he's going to be saved. And if you read Paul's writings, you, you doesn't take long to you figure out what this thing is about. And it's much more than about what he must do. So let's keep going. Somebody read for us verses uh, 21 and 22. All right. So let's start with this statement because it's easy to be overlooked. So he, he's, he's asking him, you know, well, you need to, you know, not murder and not steal and all of these kind of things. Keep the law. And he says, well, I've done this since my youth. And then Jesus, before he says anything else, it says he looks at him. And what? He loved him. He loved him. Folks, that, that's huge. Um, there's something admirable about this man. And I think it is the fact that he is a law follower. He's not perfect. I don't think he would say he was perfect, but he, he intentionally tries to follow the law. Again, is that good? Sure. And that word loved here, it means to have a great affection or care for or loyalty towards. This is, there's something admirable about him. Psalm 1. Psalm 1, if you don't know this, Psalm 1 is, is the introductory psalm that sets up all the other psalms. Okay? You want to know about the rest of the psalms, you have to start with Psalm 1. And this is the way this whole thing starts, and it kind of continues with this. Blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But, here's what the blessed man does, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. But the rich man comes to Jesus, and he feels like something is still missing, despite that. Despite that. And what Jesus tells him to do is shocking. What does he say? Yeah, now he says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And, he, and, and then he says, when you do all of that, then you'll have treasures in heaven. And then he says to do what? Once you have sold all that you have and you give it to the poor, then what? Follow me. Now this is key. This is key to the whole chapter, really the whole book of Mark. It's all about following Jesus. Okay? That's, that's really important as, as we move along in this. And, and it needs to be said that not everyone that Jesus is encountering and has encountered at this time does he say, come and follow me. Not, not now, not yet. There are those he's calling saying, come and follow me. Now all are going to be called once after the resurrection and, and the ascension and all of this kind of stuff, but right now. Now there's irony. Now we talk about this a lot. This is why we follow a book of the Bible, why, because it tells us, it connects all this stuff. And so here he just finished talking about, um, he just finished talking about marriage, right? And then he kind of hits that little blurb about children. The children are being brought to him. And we said, okay, that connects to this marriage thing because the intent 
of, of marriage is that, you know, that these two become one and then they become multiple again by bearing children. And then the hopes is they'll become one again in marriage and they'll produce more children. So there's how it connects to the front part. But he also says there that they inherit the kingdom of God. You remember that last week? You just you can look right above where we are and you can see it. So there's irony. There's irony between the children and the rich man. Okay? So for the children, they possess what? Nothing. You know, remember we talked about children. I mean, they have no status. That everything that they have is, is based upon the relationship they have with a man, which would have been a father, or a grandfather even, or someone who was in that charge. And even though they possess nothing, they lack what to get the kingdom of God? They lack nothing. Right? They lack nothing. Notice, notice again what he had said back in verse 16. No, not verse 16. Uh, verse uh, 14, Jesus saw it, he's indignant, he says, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for of such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child uh, shall not enter it. But now, the irony is what we come to with the rich man. What does he possess? Everything, Right? He possesses everything. But at the same time, he lacks something. See that? They possess nothing. They lack nothing to receive the kingdom of God. The rich man possesses everything, but he's still lacking something in order for him to inherit the kingdom of God. We're supposed to see this. And, and the, the real point of all of this is that the children have come to Jesus. They follow Jesus because they don't have anything else. They have to trust Jesus. They have to put everything they have into him, into something else other than themselves. That's the point. It's the poverty the, the sense of poverty, not just poverty itself. So, um, so it's, all, it's about following Jesus. Now, this was something as far as what he's asking the rich man to do. This was something that had been around for a long time, you know, as far as how you were to see possessions. And we see the early church and, and what they did. I mean, they once... They, in Jerusalem, they are selling all, all they have, and they're, they're giving it to, uh, laying it before the apostles. So everybody has, is taken care of in the church because there was such issues that were happening. Seneca, he said, no one is worthy of God unless he despises wealth. So how did the rich man do when Jesus said, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor? Yeah, he's disheartened. And that's a word that means shocked, he's appalled, he's sad, he's distressed. And why is that? Because he possessed everything. Because he, 
he, he had great wealth. That was the problem. That's what Jesus was trying to get across to him. Jesus is not adding an 11th command to the 10th command. He's not saying, okay, well, if you want to inherit eternal life, do all of these things, and I'm going to put a new one here, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Because he doesn't do this with all the rich people. But he does it with this rich person. Because he doesn't lack, he doesn't understand his lack. He doesn't understand it's not about him. He, he's still holding on to what he has and what he does. All right, so somebody read verses 23 through 27. Okay. Yeah. What, what, chapter are you, what chapter are you in? Twi no, what chapter? Chapter 10, 21? Okay, what chapter 10, 21 says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Anybody else say that? What what version is that? Okay. What it okay. What that is then, let me let me look at mine again. Uh mine'll give me a footnote on this. Uh generally. It's not going to be in the older manuscripts is what is the reason that's in. Anybody else is in parentheses there? Uh, some of you probably don't even have it. Um, New King James, yeah. King James, the New King James based it off the manuscripts of the King James, which were older. Uh, what they had were actually younger manuscripts. And so once they found older manuscripts, they compare those. Anything that's not there then you say you got to go with the older ones because there's a possibility. So, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's there. I just don't think, I don't think it's there. Uh, now, to come follow me, that coming and following me is denying self. It is, it is about being willing to take up a cross and following him, but I don't think that's, the, it's not there in the text. It's just not there in, the, in those older manuscripts that they, they continue to find and rely on. Um, so somebody read for us verses 23 through 27. Okay. So the rich man walks off, right? And now Jesus turns his attention to the disciples, and he continues teaching this. And, and he goes on, and he says, it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And did you notice the disciples' response? They're amazed. We've seen this word before. They're just amazed that Jesus is making such a, a bold, such as this. And you've got to also remember, in Judaism, a lot of time it was looked at as if um, you know, those who were rich were being blessed by God. The poor were those who were not being blessed by God. And, and so you have those things as well. So they're amazed by what Jesus is saying here. 
But when we see Jesus, we see that he continues um, this unusual camaraderie with, with children, um, with the orphans, and with the widows, and, and with the poor, and what we would say are the lowly, right? And he exalts them. He continually flips the world on his head, and he continues to exalt the lowly over the powerful, which would be this case um, as well. The, the biggest issue with the rich man, and I think with all of us, if we're an American, trust me, we, we have more wants that we enjoy than needs. Um, it's just easy to look at other people, isn't it? Uh, but for the rich man, the thing that he, he deals with, and I think it's, it's more than just the rich, but it's a sense of self-satisfaction. Okay, it's all upon what I do, what I have, I work hard, I provide, I don't need help. That's the sense of what's happening here. Jesus is trying to get them to this sense where they need him. This guy doesn't, has this sense of needing Jesus because he says, once you sell all that you have, come and follow me. What he's saying is, I want to continue to have my life, but I don't want your direction. I'm not looking for your guidance. All I want is something else to do. Okay? I just need something else to do. And, and there's that spiritual pride that comes in, uh, in all of this as well. Now, Jesus uses a different word here than he had for the rich man. The rich man... Uh, that's not what I was looking for. Oh, well, Jesus talked about riches often, but he didn't always, very little did he, he exalt him as a good thing. He talked about the deceitfulness of riches back in chapter 4. Um, well, yeah. And then if you remember back in chapter 8, he says, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and, and loses and lose his own soul? He forfeits his soul. What can a man give in return for his soul? So this word possession that he used for the, the rich man, it means anything owned or possessed. And, and really he's talking here about um, landowners, okay? This is someone who has real estate. With the disciples, this is a different group of people. So he uses wealth, and that can be an abundance of material possessions and resources. So it's not just for wealthy landowners. It encompasses anything... Where, where there's extra. Anyone who is able to have these things. And so it's easier, he says, for a camel, this is crazy, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a sewing needle, than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Think about that analogy here. Now, look at the disciples and how they reacted. They go from being amazed to exceedingly astonished by what Jesus just said. They're losing their minds of sorts. Now, let me give you a little side note, because there are some newer understandings over the last few centuries that is not true to the text. 
um, one of those, and, and these are to soften what Jesus has said, to make them less ridiculous than a camel going through the eye of a needle. And so one has pointed out, well, it's, it sounds, it's, it's almost exactly like the word rope. And so what he's really saying is a rope. Now, I'm not real sure if it's a whole lot easier to put a rope through the eye of a needle, but it's like, this makes more sense to them. But there is not a text at all that we find that it's not this cud-chewing, humped animal uh, that wanders around in the desert. It's always this, this animal. There's another one, and you may have heard this one. This, this one seems to have been uh, much more popular. I've heard it several times. And it's this, this concept of the eye of the needle being this, this small gate uh, there along the walls of Jerusalem. And that a camel could go through it, but in order for him to go through it, he has to kneel down in order to go through it. In other words, you know, you need to humble yourself. That's what Jesus is talking about. The problem is that teaching didn't come around until the 19th, 9th century. That's the earliest we have of this teaching is the 9th century. So we don't go based on someone's teaching of a text in the eye of a needle that comes around in the 9th century. He's saying there is, what he's saying is very literal that it's easier to take a camel and to take it through the eye of a needle that I can barely get a piece of thread through in order for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. We are meant to be shocked by this. Jesus is trying to show us that wealth is a potential danger to our faith. We do not need to lighten that. And so, but at the same time, is Jesus condemning wealth? No. A few chapters later, there's going to be this woman, and she has this, this uh, alabaster bottle, and it's got this expensive, in fact, very costly oil, and she breaks it and she uses it to anoint Jesus. And if you when we get to it, you're going to see that the disciples, they're, are, they're, they're upset about this. And they're upset at the woman. They're upset that she did not go out and sell that very costly ointment and give the proceeds to the poor. Basically, isn't this what Jesus is saying to the rich man? But Jesus there doesn't say, yes, you're exactly right. Instead, he condemns them in that situation. Does anyone know where Jesus' body was laid? whose tomb it was yeah Joseph of Arimathea he is described as a rich man he's not ever condemned for being a rich man folks that's not the issue that we find here but neither should we lighten what he's saying here because wealth has real danger and when you look at passages that Paul talks about in 1st Timothy 6 and he says, the problem is those who desire to be rich. Those who love money. Those who crave after it. And in order for us to see if this is something Jesus is saying to us, is we've got to ask ourselves, what really takes precedent in my life? Is it, is it wealth? Is it possessions? Or is it God? And, and only you can answer that question, and you can only answer it based on what money does to you, or what you'll do for it, or what you will, what you will stop doing for God because you are serving it. You see that? 
So this is, this is where he's taking us. And, and listen, the United States is a very materialistic world. Um, we need to all look at ourselves very closely and ask ourselves this question. Because what he says here to the rich man is intended to shock us into looking inwardly. We're supposed to. Anything that causes disciples to forget their poverty before God or prevents them from following Jesus is a camel trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. So the disciples ask finally the really important question. Okay, so they're amazed what Jesus said about the rich. He says this about the, you know, the camel and the eye of the needle, and now it says they are exceedingly astonished, and it causes them to ask Jesus a very important question in this text. What is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then who can be saved? Folks, that's the point. That's the point of all of this. And you notice that the disciples are just as uncomfortable by what Jesus says as the rich man. Right? And, and the point is to draw them away from trusting in their own abilities and to throw themselves to Jesus. And the only way we can move from, the, the rich can move from self-satisfaction is if they're willing to give that up to follow Jesus. Because following Jesus is the only way that we reach the kingdom of God. Um, so here, the right question is finally being asked, right? So they want to know who can be saved, right? And you're hearing this, they're like, who? Over here, what did he want to do, want, want to know? What must I do to be saved? Do you see the differences? Who can be saved? Well, what else should I do so that I can be saved? One is dependent completely upon something else because they realize in themselves it's not there. In fact, let's go ahead and read verses, um, well, no, no, no. Look at verse 27 again because when they said, then who can be saved, what does he say? But what? But with God, all things are possible. I see myself for what I am as someone who possesses nothing. Who can be saved? Only those who come to God. Only they will find what is impossible for man. But you will not find it in trying to figure out what more you need to do. It only comes in realizing our own spiritual poverty before God. Folks, that, that's, that's the point. This is the grace of God. It's, Jesus carries our failures 
with him to the cross. And you're going to be shocked after this, Jesus goes to the third prediction. But before we get there next week, we've got to finish this one up. Somebody read verses 28 through 30. Okay. This is good stuff, folks. Is it, first of all, is anybody surprised what, what Peter asked? Do you hear what he's asking? You know, he's like, well, um, well, Lord, we did what the rich man didn't do, so what's in it for us? And I love this because does Jesus scold him? Jesus does not scold him. Instead, what he says was, he says, you'll receive a hundredfold. You're going to receive a hundredfold in the life to come. And, and Jesus included those who leave their homes and their families and their fields in order to follow Jesus. And he says, understand, until the day, there will be persecution. That's the only negative in this list of positives, that you'll be persecuted for living by the principles that God has set out before you. And so we're still down in the valley, right? We're still awaiting that mountain moment where, where we are transfigured and we see the transfigured Jesus. But we know that it's okay. And this would have been very important for Mark's readers. First, the original readers, because they, they are just absolutely being sacked and persecuted by Nero in Rome. And what this is saying is God has not abandoned you. He's not forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten that you have given up all in order to follow him. And they had to give up all. They became poor, even those who were rich, because their businesses were taken away and, the, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and all of a sudden, they're poor. And they completely rely upon God. And he says, don't worry. He says, you'll receive a hundredfold. It's, it's almost like, you know, when Jesus, if they bring him this, this, you know, the five loaves and the two fish, and Jesus he just multiplies it to feed 5,000. It's like, just bring Jesus what, you, what you've got. It's not going to be enough, but just know that one day he's going to bless you. Or like back in chapter 4, the parable, and it's about that seed. And, and the seed is, you know, it goes against all that odds in order to yield this harvest of a hundred times that's greater. The reward of eternal life makes the sacrifices of discipleship insignificant in comparison to the blessings of God. And he ends this section or this particular narrative with another chiastic saying, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. How many times have we heard this through this section? This is act two of the, of the gospel of Mark. There's something happening throughout all of this, and it's leading up to a climax that's going to come in a couple of weeks. And it's, it's just so powerful when we put all of this um, together. All right, let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed to our worship hour. Father, we come to you, and we thank you, Father, for being a God of, of grace and mercy. You have pity upon us when we did not deserve it. And Father, we're just so thankful that you have sent your Son into our world to do what we cannot do, no matter how hard we try. Father, we realize that we fail, 
And all we can do is come before you and throw ourselves before your throne and beg for mercy. Father, help us to follow your son closer and closer every day. Help us to continue to put off the things in our lives that make us, give us a sense of pride and give us a sense of self-satisfaction to where we're stripped off so much, Father, that we only find anything good, anything happening in our lives that we consider to be important is what's coming from you. Father, we just, we just ask this upon you. We just pray for us as a church as we continue in this, this line of thought and teaching of your son. And, and Father, we just pray that it will spill over into our worship this morning as we come and we praise you as a community of people who are saved by your mercy and by your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.